Okay, so uh, one of the things I'm very interested in is, is laying this groundwork for understanding the unity of all things so that we can really love without borders, respect without borders, and, uh, and to see the divine in each other's eyes. Uh, in order to, to go to the next step, you know, Vivekananda said, he said, if, if the world had understood this unity from the beginning, think how far we could have come by now with civilization, you know, how far we could have come with compassion and with care. And uh, it's never too late to start. And so that's, that's kind of my, my inspiration, what I, what I was hoping that we would find uh, in this time. So we started out with the idea of God. What is God? Uh, we all have our own concepts, and we should have our own concepts of the beloved. That's what changes and grows as we do. We understand more, we can see more. Uh, the more practice we do, the more experience we have in, in sitting in the presence of the beloved. And, uh, and then being inspired. It's been my ex one of the most exciting things, I guess, to me about having gotten a spiritual practice, because I, I grew up religious, but not with, a, not with a spiritual practice of any kind. Um, our Bibles were always handy in the car for when we got to church on Sundays. <laughs> Stuffed in the back pocket there. But uh, to, to take a look at this idea of the divine, we, we are images of the divine. You know, in the Christian scripture, it talks about God making us in his image. And uh, there's a lot of confusion about what that is. An image is a, is a reflection, you know, an image in a mirror or a, an image in a picture. It's, it's a reflection of the divine. And God is this perfect absolute. He is the unchanging. You know, we talked about God the Father being the unchanging aspect of God. So the sages say that they have found three qualities. You can't really talk about the qualities of the absolute, but we're going to break that rule and say that God has basically three qualities. Uh, in Sanskrit, the word is satchit-ananda, and it's used to refer to our soul as well, because our soul actually is that divinity. And it's that divinity without, without attribute. When God was asked what his name was in the Old Testament, he said, I am, right? And he didn't put any, any adjectives after that. So that's what it means to be in his image. We, we can say, I am. And we borrow that from the divine. Our very existence comes as a gift, as a favor from the absolute, from, the, from that beloved. So our existence is our gift, and that's one of the first uh, attributes of God. The way I like to talk about it is that God is the noun of these things. So God is existence. He doesn't exist. He is existence itself. God is not loving. God is love. He is love itself. God is not intelligent. He is intelligence itself. He is the perfect, the perfected quality of all of those things. And it's important to know that he's the absolute. The absolute means he doesn't change. Why would that be important? Because he's perfect. Any kind of change, any kind of movement is due to imbalance or a lack or a need. You know, some, some, it's only that that causes change. And so God is that unchanging. And by him being or her being that unchanging nature, we then, as individuals, can perceive the changing world. 
If we were part of the changing world, it's kind of like being in an elevator. If you're in an elevator, you can't see the change because you're part of the elevator. You're part of the system itself. So you can't see change. You only know when the door opens, you're in somewhere different. And so us being the image of the beloved, that unchanging nature of the beloved, is what allows us to experience change, to see the change. And because we are in the changing, not of the changing, uh, we are the verbs of God. So God is love, we are loving. God is in intelligence, we are intelligent. God is existence, we exist. So we are the active hand of God, the active manifestation of the qualities of God. That's what it is to be that, to be that image of our beloved. And the goal of religion is for us to stop believing in our separateness. We used the story of the Garden of Eden in that first class to kind of outline our condition. We sort of took it instead of as being a historic story, we took it as being a, a story, uh, as a description of our current condition, a looping story that keeps happening continually from moment to moment in our mind, where like Eve, we step into our senses. We notice the beauty of this fruit on the tree that God told us not to take, that we would die. And we get enticed, you know, it's pleasing to our eye. It looks like it would be good to eat. It looks like it would give us wisdom, that it would fulfill us and make us like God. So we step into our body and we act, we don't remember that we're just looking through it, that we're just witnesses experiencing the beloved. And we think that we are it. And we start adding adjectives to our I am. I am a man. I am 54. I am a Vedantist. I am an American. I am this tall, this fat, this smart, this dumb, whatever. We just keep stringing on these attributes and we get tangled in them. And so all religions in the world are about diminishing that ego, diminishing that boundary. And ego, our personality, that thing about ourselves that we love so much, is actually just a collection of limitations and restrictions. So we've taken an infinite self, a self that never dies, that never is born, a self that, that, that is pure love, unconditioned, and we put all kinds of conditions on it. We, we hem ourselves in nice and tight. And we get stuck, and then the world doesn't make sense. We see good and evil, and we wonder how can there be good and evil in the world. You know, God becomes separate from us, and we start to doubt his existence at all, not understanding that he's all we've ever experienced, she's all we've ever known. Because in our restriction, we start projecting restriction. And instead of seeing and witnessing the divine song of our beloved, we see cars and people and problems and things take on different meanings and different interpretations. And so all religion is about dismantling that separation to return to our ideal state, to be, to, to be able to, to manifest God, the image of the beloved, the image of God that's within us, to be able to manifest that freely and not to put our conditions of mind on it. You're not tall enough, you're not pretty enough, you're of the wrong nationality, you're the wrong skin color, you're not rich enough. Those are all things of the mind. And our mind is our biggest trouble. <laughs> our mind is what likes to look and notice difference and then categorize accordingly. So the mind only does those two things. It notices difference and it categorizes. 
Those are the two functions of mind. Uh, now, mind also includes time, space, and causation. You know, that time, space, and causation isn't out there. You see time, space, and causation because your tool, your mind, only can function with those three things, with that time, space, and causation. And you can tell that. One of my favorite things, Swami Prabhupada and I, sadly enough, had to take several surgeries back in the early 2000s. And he and I used to have these great conversations about the, the nature of that uh, anesthesia, you know, when you go, when you're put under. And we both had this thing going on where we would try and hold on to consciousness as long as possible. And it was a joke between us because you, you simply can't. And no matter how present you are, it's always opening your eyes and finding the surgery finished. You know, it's, you, you, you never know when you went out. You can't point to that moment. And uh, so that's how you know that time belongs to the mind. Uh, because when the mind is shut down, when you're removed from it, there is no experience of time. There is no passage of time. And so that's how we know that time is in there. Causation happens because of our limitations. Uh, you know, we see the world as cause and effect, but if you broaden your boundaries, you see that all effects are causes and all causes are effects, that there is no distinction. There's no such thing as something being a cause and something else being an effect. It's just a matter of broadening your boundaries. And then you realize the oneness, you know, that, that <laughs> it's all in perfect balance. And our change is only because of our perception, the way that we limit it and define it and look at it. So this, this problem of ours of not knowing ourselves, uh, because it's very difficult to grab onto something that has no attributes. You know, you can't, you can't go around looking in your mind and say, where am I, where am I? Because your eye is infinite. Your eye doesn't have attributes or it has all attributes. You can look at it either way and you, you can't find it. Once you've taken on attributes, once, it's, once that, that, that soul has identified with a set of attributes, it takes to it like a fish to water. It just you know, dances in those attributes, loves them. But the reverse process is very difficult because the place you stepped out of is absolutely still, absolutely silent, full of pure love, full of pure tranquility, full of pure existence. And so once you've stepped out of that into the world of the senses, all of this color and all of this noise and all of this sound and all of these people and all of these enjoyments and all of these things going on, they keep our attention. We can't find that silent stillness within. And so religion is a matter of finding our way back to the Garden of Eden. You know, that, that, that cherub with the flaming sword of desire that, that is protecting the garden from our return so that we can't eat of the tree of immortality we talked about. That's the tree that's still standing in the garden and it's the reason that God wouldn't let us back in after we, after we decided that we knew better, that we wanted our individuality and we wanted our own way to make choices and we wanted to do things we wanted to do regardless of whether he wanted them for us or not. So we had to leave this tranquil place because we preferred the world of the senses. And he let us do it, but he told us what the curse was. He says, if you do that, you're going to have to work from morning till night every day to fulfill your desires. You're going to be scratching at the dust of the earth, you know, continually. And that's exactly where we are. It's exactly what's happened. You know, fortunately for most of you, we've retired, so you don't have to worry about that tilling and scratching at the earth. <laughs> but you still have to find ways of mediating your boredom, right? <laughs> like, oh God, what am I going to do today? Like that. And that's part of the curse of living in the senses and identifying with the world of change. 
and not being content uh, with perfect harmony, perfect tranquility, perfect love and peace, although it constantly calls us back. That echo is there. We can't get away from it. That's the reason we know uh, about ideas that don't exist in the world of, of the senses, ideas of Im immortality. We shouldn't even know the concept of immortality. There is nothing immortal. There is nothing that could have taught us immortality. Uh, infinity, our own infinity. There's nothing in the manifested world that could teach us infinity. And so that's how we know these little clues that are around us, it's this constant calling. It's why religion never dies. As much as people hate religion, <laughs> as sick as they get of it, and as much as they don't like it, and as much trouble as they think it causes, it's been around from the beginning. Because there's something inside of us that just nags us. That constant call of the beloved, come back. You know, come back. You're going to be happier this way. All right, you need some more time to work it out. Go ahead. But come back, come back. He won't leave us alone in that sense. So that was the first class, identifying God, identifying what our trouble was, where, where our need for the return is. And uh, let me pull out the flyer so I can keep track of where we're going. Then the second class was uh, the goal and its attainment. We looked at uh, uh, Eckhart Tolle and his realization experience where he said that he was laying in bed one night and he was depressed. I guess that's good to set the stage. He was, he was a very depressed person, diagnosed with severe depression. He was suicidal. He, he was thinking about ending his life. And he woke up in the middle of the night one night and was sitting there just bemoaning the fact that he was alive. And uh, he heard himself say to himself, I can't live with myself anymore. And that sentence hit him right between the eyes. I can't live with myself anymore. And he th began pondering it. Am I two people? Who is this I that can't live with myself anymore? And uh, by pondering that and thinking about that, he apparently was at a place where the mind was ripe and that pushed him over the edge and he had that unitive experience. He had, he, uh, it wasn't the ultimate experience because he still existed as, as, as the experiencer. There was still someone to experience. And so uh, he, he gives us a description that uh, one of my favorite parts of it is that when he woke up in the morning, he realized that love and light were the same thing. That this light was not a phenomena, that this light that we experience was actually divine love. And that that light feeds everything, warms everything, uh, uh, illumines everything, gives clarity to everything. And he, he was put into such a state of bliss, he said, that for something like five months, he couldn't do anything but sit on a park bench in wonder. He just sat there which, as just one wave of bliss came over another. He said that he saw everything he looked at for the first time, no matter how many times he looked at it. Every time it was brand new and it was beautiful. He picked up old bottles out of the ditch and was just, just mesmerized by the beauty that they had. He looked at uh, the, uh, all the things on his dresser, you know, his change and his wallet. And he said, I saw it all. And each one, each time it was just wrapped in wonder and beauty. And he spent months like that before it subsided. And he came back into the sense world and did nothing but talk about that at least for the rest of his days. And then we talked about the Peace Pilgrim, that marvelous woman. Oh my God, what a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful soul. 
she was living during the Cold War and became so disturbed by this constant threat of life, of war and violence, that one day she just had enough and she walked out her front door with the determination that I will do nothing with my life but talk about peace, talk about love. And after she had walked out of her door, she walked out of her door wearing an apron and in the pocket of the apron was a comb and a pad and a pencil. She never owned more than that again before she died. And she never had a house. She never took refuge. She never asked for anything. She decided she would only take what the universe gave her unasked, that that was the root of peace to her. And the universe, unsurprisingly, or maybe surprisingly, absolutely took care of her. She has a wonderful book on her that you can get for free if you go online to the peacepilgrim.org, I think it is. Uh, they provide the, all of their books for free, the story of her life and the story of her teachings, which are beautiful, really lovely. And actually, I should have brought them. We have a stack of her pamphlets in the monastery next door. I did bring, like I promised, just a smattering of books, which I'll talk about at the end. I won't take this time right now, that you can uh, either take or buy. They're for sale, but I hate the idea. So if you don't have the money and you want the book, feel free. <laughs> I'll explain it to the center later. Uh, so um, the Peace Pilgrim walked out the door and her experience, she said she was walking through a meadow in the woods one morning on her wanderings. And she said suddenly she was overcome, overwhelmed with this sense of tranquility, this sense of peace. And she said everything became luminous. Everything emitted a light. Everything seemed to have a halo to it, she said, and that there was, as it were, flecks of gold kind of floating through the dappled sun. And she saw, she said that, that everything became beauty times 10, you know, everything was so vivid and so lovely and so peaceful and so serene and so loving, so nurturing. She said, but it wasn't the phenomena that was the most overwhelming thing. She said it was the knowing that it was all one, that it was the unity that was apparent to her that changed her life at that point. And so we talked about her unitive experience in that way. Then we stepped into uh, uh, Sri Nishagadatta Maharaj, who uh, <laughs> it, was an, it was an illumined soul in Bombay, India. And uh, he was a cigarette maker, or a beady maker. If you've been to India, they have these nasty little cigarettes that, <laughs> that are smaller than a normal cigarette, and they're kind of twisted. They're handmade on both ends, and they're cheap, and everybody smokes them. And uh, so he used to make those for a living. And I, you know, weird things about God really grabbed my attention. And God, as a cigarette maker in Bombay, India, seemed beautiful to me. What a lovely way to manifest himself for us. For us. And uh, he stepped into the ideas of this unity and how to experience it, uh, how to know it. Uh, you know, this illumination experience that is the goal of life, actually, according to the earliest scriptures, the Rig Veda says that the fulfillment of the human endeavor is the knowing of this unity of all things, that that's the goal of life to completely shed, to completely self-abnegate in the ideal of Jesus, to let go of any notion of self that's separate and apart from the beloved, and to let the beloved manifest that nature, that Satchitananda, through you spontaneously. 
and that if you're able to remove your ego completely so that your will doesn't get in the way, your will never exerts, your will is only God's will. Whatever is, is fine with you. If food comes, wonderful, the body gets fed. If food doesn't come, well, the body doesn't get fed. It's not me anyway. You know, it, it will drop off as it drops off. So to have that kind of freedom, that kind of idea. And he says, he teaches us that if you are able to live in that space, we're just letting the heart manifest, letting the beloved live through you to take on that Christ consciousness, to go into the book of Galatians with Paul, he talks about that, having the mind of Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. To attain that state is to be free of ego. You have reneged your decision to be separate and apart from God, and you've apologized and, and abnegated the whole idea of having a will that would eat of any tree it liked. <laughs> and returning to that unitive uh, uh, home in, in the Garden of Eden within. So we talked about Sri Nishigadat in that way. Then we went into principles of practice the following week. What, what are the things that are necessary for setting ourselves up to, to see things as they are, to get rid of this ignorance that has captured us? And we talked about what the three most important things are in all, in all religions, all traditions, all spiritual life of any kind has the same three most important things. I found them with a lot of effort. <laughs> I give them to you freely. Of course, they're obvious to most people. I had to look deeply for them. But anyway, the first one, these are not in order. They are all equally important. The first one is sincerity and earnestness, that we do things with a sincere and an and earnest spirit. Uh, someone said that uh, you're earnest about the things that you choose to do when you don't have to do anything else. So that's how you know. If, if this quest for the beloved, if this, if this desire for knowledge is sincere and earnest in you, it's what you choose to do when you have free time, something you look for. So that sincerity and earnestness is necessary for taking even one step in religious life. Uh, if you don't have it, then the first steps of your practices will be to try and attain that, you know, and there are ways of doing that. The second one is truth. Uh, and now truth, everybody, you know, Pontius Pilate, when Jesus uh, claimed to be the truth, Pontius Pilate kind of sneered and was like, ah, what is truth? What truth is, is an alignment. It's an integrity in you. It's an alignment between what you say, what you think, and what you do that for you to take even the first step in real spiritual life, those three things have to be unified in your life. That means no hypocrisy, one of the biggest ailments of religion in the world. So we have to attain that truth. We have to practice that very earnestly and very, very arduously to make that alignment, to be committed to that alignment. And when we, when we, when we step out of that alignment to return to it as quick as possible. So that's the second one. The third one is from our beloved Jesus when he says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, Christianity, because Christianity is very dual-based in its orientation, those are two commands. In Vedanta, that's a single command because God is, is behind every face. And so to love God, you have to love him in every being, in everything. It doesn't even have to be a being necessarily. You know, there's that delightful image of the child who runs around the yard, you know, taking care of the leaves that are talking to him, you know, and the grasshopper who speaks to him. 
and to return to that notion of the world being alive, having feelings, being sentient, because it is the manifestation of your beloved and he is present in all of it and beyond it, not limited to it. And so those are the three most important things of our of any religion. And so as a practitioner, those are the three things that we watch. If we want to know where we are on the path, how far along we are, how advanced we are, there's two questions you get to ask yourself. Those two questions are, first, am I unselfish? Unselfishness is the primary measure for knowing how spiritual you are. <laughs> Probably the first one is not caring how spiritual you are. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, if you're trying to keep a record and you want to know where you're at, how unselfish are you? That's the number one. And the second one is very closely related, but it's, an, it's a positive. How loving are you? How loving are you? you know, so if I was to go around your office or go around your apartment building and ask people their opinions of you, would the words unselfish and loving be in that compendium of knowledge? So that, that is always your measure. If you want to know how near you are to your beloved, those two questions will tell you. And then uh, our last uh, uh, study was this evolution to the oneness, this moving into the oneness of all things and how to touch that oneness. And we talked about practices that you have to do in order to touch that oneness within you. You have to set aside your attributes that you've collected uh, to define yourself. You have to set them down and you have to find that source of love that percolates through the heart, that place where that absolute, perfect, unconditioned love is leaking, as it were, into this world of change in your chest. And in that, in that space is where you begin, where you emanate. So that, that pure love is dripping into the world through your heart and illuminating your mind, which then illuminates all of this variance and uh, you have to find that place and identify with that place before you can see it in anyone else. Because this world, interestingly enough, and this gets into some heavy philosophy, which I love. Some people go cross-eyed uh, in it. But this notion uh, that the sages say that this world is all mind. And uh, I'm going to jump into this because I like it. Uh, <laughs> This idea, it's quite fascinating to think about that you know your brain is in a black box, right? Your brain is in your cranium. Your brain has never seen a light. Your brain has never touched a person, has never pet beautiful little Charlie over there, has never had any experience. The only thing your brain gets is little information that is transmitted along the nerves into its receptive centers. And from that information, it has created this, which is a world of symbol. Because it has never seen what light looks like, it has created that as a symbol of light. Created that as a symbol of light. Because it doesn't know what light is. It doesn't know what purple is. It doesn't know what green is. So it has created these hues, these random symbols as an idea of color. It has uh, assumed sound and given it a quality. 
uh, taking all that information coming in off of that nerve and, and interpreting it in a particular way. And you think, okay, let's, that's, we're well on the road to insanity if we start living according to that. It gets worse because you don't know where that information is coming from. The sages tell us, the realized souls tell us that there is no such thing as internal and external. That the internal things are the things you understand and the external things are the things you don't yet understand. So those things that you don't fully understand you put outside of yourself or the things you don't fully know and those things that are fully known you incorporate, they're part of you. But you don't know if this ear has a real existence or is it a symbol that the mind has created as the place that sound comes from. There's no way for you to know that. There's no way for you to know or to validate that there's an outside world at all. <laughs> and the sages say that that's because in fact there isn't one. <laughs> that, that there is, that the reality of this universe is one without a second. And that's the highest realization to know that. That's the final realization. To know that all of it was, was an imagination. All of it was a dream. And everything collapses. All the boundaries go away. And the problems of good and evil balance out into a neutral bliss. And you understand that none of it was important <laughs> in that sense. That none of it was, none of it had an individual existence. That it was all the beloved playing. There's many reasons, uh, all of them made up, about why God manifested, why this world looks the way that it looks. Uh, but uh, any, any explanation is fine. It's like a dream, you know. The dream is a wonderful thing to contemplate because you get a lot of understanding from it. I love to tell the story, and I probably told it during that class, about a, a, a lucid dream. Do you know what a lucid dream is? I've accidentally had a lucid dream twice in my life. A lucid dream is when you realize in the dream that you're dreaming. And it's only happened twice for me. One of the, both of them I remember distinctly. One was very short because the second I remembered or realized that I was dreaming, I tried to manipulate the dream and immediately woke up. So there's not much to tell in that one. The second one, I actually stayed in the dream for a while. And in this dream, this is, this is really odd. In this dream, I was in a little yellow dinghy, very little dinghy, sitting on the Monterey Bay in California. And I was sitting there in the sun, kind of bobbing around on this thing, and I just, the idea popped into my head in the dream, you're dreaming, you know this is a dream. And I looked around, just in a new kind of attention, like, wow, wow, this is amazing. And because at that time in my life I was a computer engineer, <laughs> I became fascinated with the resolution of everything. <laughs> Extremely nerdy. But I tapped my fingers in the water and I saw the individual droplets just like it was in real life and I watched them fall off my fingertips and I was amazed. I was like, that is incredible. Look at that resolution. Look at that detail. And I looked up at the hill that was over there and that was that bright purple ice plant growing on the hill and they were kind of coming down in tendrils. And I could see all the tendrils and I could see the dirt and the rocks underneath it and the cliffs and the waves. And I was just really, really just tripping out on this for a minute and then over to my left and this is the part that's really important to me on the left was this girl probably I don't know 20 years old she was blonde she was in her own dinghy and she was bobbing away and she really wasn't paying much attention to me but I saw on her cheek some of her blonde hair had stuck to her skin and the water droplets were chasing you know kind of running down the skin 
at that point, she ceased to be a, a woman to me or a person to me. I was <laughs> more fascinated with just the individual hairs and the, the, the droplets of water combining with that. So I paddled over to study her, literally, to study that, what I was seeing. And in this is this is really amazing. This is so cool to me because when I got that close and reached up to touch her face without her permission, of course, because to me I was dreaming. She belonged to me. I, this, I everything about her was me. She was in my own mind. But when I got that close to her and I reached up to touch her face, she smacked my hand away and got offended that I had violated her personal space. And I burst out laughing and woke up. <laughs> I burst out laughing and woke up, and I couldn't sleep the rest of the night because I thought, how odd that in my dream, where everything was mine, everything was in my head, belonged to me, conceived of by me, produced by me, that this woman had an ego. She had a sense of self that was separate from me, and was not connected to me so that she could be offended by me in my dream. <laughs> and I understood the nature of the world from that. I was like, that's, that's how it works. That's how it works. You know, we are all in one dream here. This is the dream of the beloved. God is dreaming. And he is each one of us completely. But he's given himself a sense of separateness so that you get offended if I come over and start touching your cheeks without, without permission, or if I come over and start running my fingers through your hair because it's an amazing color without asking you or honoring your separateness, honoring your, your separateness from me, and how that can happen without us knowing. And I was telling this dream to, uh, to an, a fellow monk in, in uh, Tribuco Canyon in California, Swami Aropeshananda, and uh, he laughed and he said, you know, I had a very similar dream. It wasn't a lucid dream, he said, but you know, the other night I was dreaming and this guy in my dream told me a joke and I didn't get it. I couldn't understand the joke. And he said, the next morning I was outside gardening and I remembered the dream and I remembered the joke that this guy told me and I was sitting there thinking about it and suddenly I got it and I burst out laughing. Do you see why that's profound? His own mind created a joke that his own mind didn't get until later the next morning. And then he gets his own joke and laughs out loud. This is the mind. This is the tool that this world is painted on. When, God, when it's talked about that we are the image of God, this world is the canvas. This world is the white movie screen the mind is the white movie screen upon which God is projected. And the image he is projecting is you and me and this world. And without us, just like a real movie, if you contemplate this one, I never am good at, at, at communicating this idea, but on this movie screen of life, when you go to the movies, everybody knows you're not seeing a moving picture, right? You know that. The, move, the picture does not move. It's your mind makes it move by associating one still image with the next one after another. And so your mind projects movement onto something that's not moving. Oddly enough, the sages say the same thing about this, this reality. And not only that, all you're seeing is color. 
being flashed on a screen with an accompanying soundtrack. If you're a dog watching a movie, you can't follow the plot because you don't have any of the human experience to project over what you're seeing to explain what's happening. If you are a man who has never gone on a date in your life and never had a relationship and you watch When Harry Met Sally, you're like, what's, what's going on? What, what, what's happening? You see, you are actually the movie. You are the one that goes into the theater and makes that a story. Your mind connects those pictures. You see what looks like a man and you say, oh, that's a man, but it's not. It's just colors on a white screen. Oh, there's the woman, that's a woman. No, it's not, that's just other colors. But your mind assigns the man and woman. Oh, look, they're dating because they're interacting, but they're not interacting. You know, it's a succession of stills. Oh, look, they've broken up. Oh, and then you're crying, you know, not because you've seen anything, but because you're projecting your own story onto the movie. And you remember the pain of breaking up. You remember lost love. And so it plays into the story. If you don't bring all of that to the movie, there is no movie. There is no story. Same thing in this world. If you don't bring your ego, your sense of separateness from, this, from, from your experience of a body and mind, if you leave that behind and you understand that really all there is is a white screen, then you know the truth. You're not trapped anymore in this continual cycle of desire, fulfillment, lack of uh, need of more, <laughs> you know, just this continual loop, this wheel of samsara, they call it, uh, where you just keep looping, keep going around and around and around and around. You'll do something and it always ends. You know, Food only tastes good for about two inches. At least my tongue's about two inches long. That's how good food is. Two inches worth of good. After it's past the tongue, it's not so good. <laughs> not so happy. And isn't that the way with all desires? They're only good for a moment, and then you're left without them. And depending on how aware of, of that you are, to the degree of, you, of your unawareness, you keep buying in. You keep buying in. I'll do it again, and I'll do it again, and I'll do it again. But it will always leave you the same after it's finished, in a sense of lack because it's over, with only a memory to make you want more. And so we get trapped in that cycle. And so we talked about how to, to get out of that practice through discrimination, through discernment, by taking the things of your life and looking closely at them, stretching out the boundaries, so that when you go and... Uh, you think that, you know, you woke up last Saturday morning with a big hangover and the first thing you said as you grabbed your head and reached for your grape juice was like, oh God, I'm never going to do that again. And then Friday night comes and what are you doing? <laughs> You're right out there again because you didn't discriminate. You didn't discern. You didn't adjust your boundaries. See, with our desires, we only remember and think about those parts that are good, you know. The drinking and having fun with your friends, that's the boundary. Yes, I want that. Of course, I love to drink and have fun with my friends. But if you move that boundary out and you include the next morning and maybe most of the next day, you would have second thoughts. Like, oh, maybe I'll just have two. <laughs> Still be with my friends, but I'll just have two. And that way I can wake up fresh on Saturday morning. All desire is like that. All desire is like that. For every high... 
there's a following low, just like the waves in the ocean. Every time there's a big wave, behind the wave there's a big lull. Because there's oneness, there's balance in this world. And everything that you get that's above the balance has to be paid for from below the balance. So there is no gaining. There is no increasing. Your desires are not taking you higher or taking you farther. Your desires are taking you absolutely nowhere, just in an endless cycle. And so that is the underlying unity of all things. To know that when we let go of all of this need for our separateness, for our will, for our desire, for our perceptions and projections, then we collapse into that oneness, pure love, pure intelligence, pure unending existence. And that's the goal of religion. That's the goal of life. Uh, that unity kind of also falls into the idea of having a religion, you know, that in reality there is none such thing as secular. Secular just means forgetting, being unconscious, because you've never experienced anything but God. You've never seen anything but the beloved. You've never touched, heard, tasted, smelled anything but the beloved. So it's impossible to escape spiritual life. It's impossible to have something secular. And that's, that's, that's the world being presented. So I'm going to open it up for questions and answers now. We've got eight minutes. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes. Well, uh, they don't see the other. In other words. Well, that's they. Yeah, they don't see that unity. They, when you apply, probably one of the worst things you can do is apply ego to religion, uh, which is which is so tempting to do because all of us want to be eternally right. <laughs> um, have God on our side. Have God, yeah, have God on our side, <clears throat> which is a hilarious thing to think God has a side. There's no God over there. He's only over here. Anyway, how do you deal with that? Okay, this is a tough one. This is a tough teaching. There is none such thing as hatred. Hatred is love seen from an egoistic perspective. All right? Each of those, and so, and so we have to learn to look for that. Not identify hatred, because hatred doesn't exist. Because everything is the beloved. There is no hatred in God. So what, what is hatred? Hatred is love seen from the other side. I always use 9-11 as my example for this. 9-11, I was standing in a monastery in San Francisco. My mother calls. She's screaming on the phone. We're under attack. Oh, my God, we're under attack. Not so unusual for my mother to call me <laughs> saying something like that. So I'm going into my eldest son space. Carol, chill out. It can't be that bad. Turn the television on. So I turn on the TV. And sure enough, I watched the second plane fly live into the building. And I'm standing there, the phone drops, not out of my hand, but to my side. And I, oh my God. <laughs> and then the news of the Pentagon comes up, okay? So that's the scene. All of us, most of us, I think, were, were there and experiencing that. Then the camera cuts to a scene in Baghdad or some, somewhere in the Middle East. And there's literally all these young men dancing in the streets, you know, cheering. And I see this 
two extreme experiences and as a monk that immediately starts getting me okay world of opposites pairs of opposites they go together one is always necessary if the other exists so i start thinking about this what am i learning here what is what is this telling me and what i'm understanding is that because of my identity as being a male american you know christian vedantist in san francisco this is horrifying this is hatred this is murder this is terrorism but if i were to let go of that set of attributes and put myself in baghdad at 24 having been brought up in a religion that my society loves deeply that i have been taught to practice deeply and i've been combating this this evil western internet and all of the things that it is putting in front of me that is causing my friends to fall and giving me struggles and I'm watching this slow movement of this, this cultural imperialism, as it were, in my movie theaters, all of these Western ideals infiltrating my society and going against my own values, and I'm helpless to fight them. If I take on that identity, I see that, wow, we finally punched the dragon in the eye. You know, we finally made a statement. Us, our tiny little helpless country has, has hit America. You know, this, this great Satan <laughs> from that perspective. So see, they had an ideal that was inspired by love. They loved their tradition. They loved their religion. They loved their idea of God. They loved their sense of value, their culture. And that was being, that was in their perspective under attack, you know, slowly being dissolved and slowly being diminished in a very helpless kind of way. So this for them was a great victory. It was an expression of that ideal. We've done something. God is great. We love this. And I, not identifying with that, I'm standing on the other side of that ideal, not sharing it, not understanding it, not even caring about it at that moment. All I'm seeing, I'm Christian. I'm white. I'm American. I'm being attacked. I am a victim. I was doing nothing. I was just being peacefully me, you know. But the world never is like that. There's always cause and effect. And a person who does any action, no matter how heinous it is, at the moment he does that action, he's justified. He has come up with a set of ideals that he's lined up in a row that justifies that action. The thief who steals the television, I'm doing it because my baby needs formula and I don't have any money, <laughs> you know. But the person who's getting their television stolen, ah, stealing my stuff, he deserved to die. He was a thief. So that, that is the, di the, the dilemma that we're in. Our responsibility as religious people or as spiritual people, if we define ourselves that way, is not to judge, not to immediately judge based on our set of ideals, but to go to a silent space for a moment until we can perhaps see the ideal that is causing that action. To have enough respect for the other person to believe that they feel justified in what they're doing. And in our giving them that respect, and in our assist insistence on being one, that there is an underlying oneness, our task is to find that ideal, appreciate that ideal, and then teach. Because until you respect, hear, and understand, they cannot hear you. You cannot hear them. And we'll be in the situation that we're in, 
where one heinous activity follows another as we battle it out, you know, fighting it out. And nobody's going to win. This yeah, the people in uh, Islam said that, that it was not what they preached. They do not preach. That is right. Yeah, that's another thing to understand is that fundamentalism is not of a certain religion. Fundamentalism is a human condition. Fundamentalism is when ego gets mixed with religion. And there are fundamentalist Christians who would be just as happy to do that to, to Islam or to Jews or to gays. And there are fundamental gays who would be just as happy to do that to Christians and to Catholics and to Muslims. You know, we, we are all capable of fundamentalism, of mixing our ego with our ideal. That's what fundamentalism is. And so the, 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 the enemy here is not religion. That's the easy answer. That's the answer that feel, makes ego feel good. Religion's the problem, they're on the wrong one. You know, that makes it feel good. The real problem here is ego being mixed with our ideal. You know, it always troubled me growing up that I belonged accidentally, purely accidentally, to the only true religion. That really nagged me. <laughs> that really bugged me. How is it that I'm so sure that all the other religions are wrong when I don't know the first line of anything they have to say? How is that possible? And yet I grew up, it took me 25 years to finally get to the point where I was like, okay, this isn't going to work for a life. I've got to figure this out. And that began, I think my spiritual life really began at that point. You know? So, yes. What do I mean when I say divinity? Yeah, divinity is definitely within consciousness. You can't have divinity without consciousness. Um, yeah, divinity, usually when I'm talking about the divine, I'm using a word other than God for God, normally. And God is a concept. Uh, as long as we see ourselves separate and apart from God, the universe plays along. That um, this is one of the interesting things, that, that God, God is real, even though I create him, don't throw anything. <laughs> we create our concept of God by defining ourselves as separate from him. And then we just pile on all of our ideals, our highest ideals on that entity. And it can be anything we want it to be. It can be a man in the sky. It can be a feeling. It can be a formless everything. It can be any of those things. Uh, but it's all because of consciousness. Consciousness is the one reality. It's the, it is your existence, it is your love, it is your intelligence. So that consciousness is all pervading. And our consciousness is the part of us that's infinite and never changes. Uh, from our perspective right now, yes, but your consciousness is not a part of you. Consciousness is not a plural and cannot be divided. Uh, you dwell within it. But your illusion, because you think your mind, when you think your mind, you are in the world. You are in consciousness. You are in your body. When you take that first step back from mind, when the first time it happens, suddenly that whole idea changes. Your body is in you. The world is in you. Your mind is within you. And no longer are you under its 
purveyance under its you're no longer subject to it you are outside of it but for us now yes consciousness belongs to that part of us that we identify as the as the real at least in words when we begin to understand that and actually know that then every everything switches from being us in the middle of all of it to all of it within us same as a dream when you're in the dream everything is outside of you when you know yourself to be the dreamer and not the dreamed, then the dream is within you. The perspective changes. In the back first, and then we'll get there. Yes. Oh, I just wanted to thank you for bringing the Vedanta Center to Leisure World because I've <laughs> seen the center for many years, and you know, it's strange but uh, enticing, but not uh, you know, to bring it to Leisure World is really wonderful. And I just had a mundane question on your your, uh -huh. your flyer about temple hours. It says evening arati begins at six thirty. Exactly what is evening arati? Arati is vespers. Arati. It's vespers. It's the meditation of the day uh, at the when the when the when the sun is when the sun is going down and night is coming upon us. A convergence of day and night, and. Uh, we set it at a time. We don't sit and wait for the sun to do its thing. We set a time for, for a convention. But yeah, RT is just evening vespers, and we we basically sing three traditional Sanskrit songs, and and then meditate for an hour together, and so uh, that happens every night. And that's open to. Everything is always open, over there. Our doors are only closed from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., uh, and that's just because none of us wants to get up to make you tea in the middle of the night. <laughs> So, yeah, the, the Vedanta Center over there, I just, you know, I, it, uh, <laughs> I wrestle with my beloved Vedanta Center all the time because, uh, you know, it's universal and it's open in its, in its practice and its philosophy. But in its reality, sometimes it seems very foreign because majority of folks that come there are, are Indian. And the, the folks who actually uh, built the place, most of them are, are Indian. And so India, in the, that, that culture defines the center. But that's just the physical manifestation. That's not the point or the purpose of the center. And so uh, because we do things in very Indian ways over there, like the way the temple's decorated and whatnot, it seems exactly like you described it, foreign and strange. But, but if you hang on a little bit, if you can get past that, and it took me a long time to do it myself. I walked out of uh, three lectures when I first started coming. The first time I saw somebody bow down and take the dust of the feet of the Swami in charge, I walked out. I was like, I don't know what that is. I don't want any part of it. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> uh, the second one, I was invited to a meal, and I got yelled at because I touched my plate with the mashed potato spoon, and everybody gasped. And I didn't know what that meant, so I put the potato spoon back in the potatoes, and I got a bigger gasp. And so at that, I was like, okay, I'm finished. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here, but I'm out of here. <laughs> you know? So things like that happen. And, uh, and so if you are interested in coming by, wear your shoes, barge in, you know, bring your Coke and bring your hot dog. Make yourself at home. And uh, if there's tittering and confusion all around you, know it's because you're eating a hot dog and wearing shoes in the library. Don't worry. Your welcome is deeper than that, and, uh, and, and the mind is bigger and wider than that. So uh, come and make yourselves at home that. We don't, the Vedanta Society does not, uh, I'm plugging it, and I, I, I don't like doing that, but I can't help it. I was raised a Christian. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it really is a universal space. You, you don't need to be anything in particular to study the traditions. I myself call myself a Vedic Christian.
Uh, we have we have Muslims in the order. We have Christians in the order. Uh, we have had we have atheists in the order, uh, because it really isn't all about that. It's about knowing and, and learning and growing together. And so come and do your practice there and uh, make yourself at home, make your studies there. You're always welcome to come in, make yourself a cup of coffee or tea, or if one of us is there, we'll, we'll hopefully beat you to it and make you a cuppy, cup of tea and a cookie. So uh, use it like a spiritual living room. Come read the books, come meditate, spend your time, use it as you want to use it, and, uh, and, and, and go at will. So that's the Vedanta Center. And your question? Oh, it wasn't really a question. Mm -hmm. You were talking about uh, what is evil or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, when my son was in high school, he had a friend who was Jewish, and one day he said to him, "Well, what do you do? You believe in God? What do you think God is?" And this, you know, man said to my son, "In our religion, we believe that God is the goodness of man," which I thought was a pretty good answer. Yeah, that will lead you there for sure. Yeah. No, doing good, even though good is, is, you know, there's always evil to match good. You can't have one without the other. Uh, doing the good will, will move you toward God. In, in, in the way that we set up the paradigm of life in Vedanta, there, there's not good and evil. There's helpful and unhelpful. There's what they call vidya and avidya. Vidya are things that will take you toward this unity, toward the knowledge of your oneness with everything. And avidya, the, that evil will take you toward the diversity or toward away from the, the, that unity, that underlying unity. So we see everybody is moving and growing not from wrong to right, but from a lower truth to a higher truth. You know, just like when you're a kid, you've got your ideas of the world. They're not necessarily wrong, but as you grow up, you get a higher understanding, a better understanding of those things. So that's how we perceive the world. Why? Uh, yeah, it's, it does seem to be built into us, uh, because we, per, as 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 we define ourselves, we define somebody else as having something we want, and if that something is otherworldly or or an ideal encapsulates purely an ideal of ours, it's in our nature to worship that. Worship means to is a natural response, really, to seeing our ideal presented to us. Uh, it's it's just part of our ingrown nature. We know as an identified self with a body and mind. If we don't know our inner nature, we don't know our oneness, when we see an ideal that reflects it to us, that, that, that tells it to us, we're deeply attracted to that, profoundly attracted to it. We don't know why. The why is because we recognize ourselves. We recognize pure love, we recognize infinity, we recognize tranquility, we recognize all those things that we want. And our natural response is self-abnegation, is to set down, to set aside our lower self, and to worship, to, to, to find a sense of unity with this presented ideal. Uh, you know, in Vedanta, you'll see, you'll see idols when you come to the Vedanta Center, and I do this, because it's very interesting, uh, mostly uh, Christian history has gotten to define Hinduism for us. And so when the Christian missionaries went to India and saw all these 33 million gods, uh, we got defined as a polytheistic religion. 
but if you ask a, a practicing Hindu, you know, what is going on there, these are 33 million faces of one God. They are 33 million gods through which God has been realized, through which that unity has been seen. That they are not outside of the mythology and, and way of speaking about them. They are not separate and apart from Brahman, from that one unity, from that indivisible. And when a person is worshiping through an idol, they're doing that. They're not worshiping the idol. They are worshiping God through the idol. That idol is a means to understanding that unity. It is not the unity itself. And so Vivekananda says, you know, that's, that's what's going on. You're not worshiping the idol in and of itself. It's a, it's a rock. Everybody knows that. But you're worshiping the beloved through that rock, through that ideal, to touch him. At some point, that image will fall away for you. I'm puzzled. Um, how, how pure a newborn child is. And how we try to educate it. That puzzles Yes. There's not much of a puzzle there. <laughs> we do that all the time. We have our worldview and we project it everywhere because there's nothing else we can do. We've made it all up. <laughs> and so we kind of just have to keep propagating it. So we've established conventions that make it work and we have to teach those to the young kids because we can't have them be 40 years old and not realize their toes belong to them. So, uh, and so we feel the need to bring them to the same level of ignorance that we all are so that we can get along and function, you know, in the world that we have imagined. So. I was wondering about the view of um, renunciation of the body. It seemed as though there was a lot of giving up of the sensual and such. Um, background to my question is, very much seems that in different religions this has manifested itself by viewing women as leading men into sex. Therefore, women are unclean in some way or not as good in some way. And it seems as though all of He's all right. Um, I it seems it seems as though most religions seem to say, leave the body and its wishes and desires behind. The spiritual is the true self. It's the true union with God. And somehow the body, I don't know, what do they say? Mm -hmm. it's, rather than being a gift from God, it's more like, Almost a burden when we Yeah. Um, again, in Vedanta, when you have a conversation, especially like this, you have to decide where you're going to put the peg in the board. In, in the first sense, uh, this, this world as we live in it is rather odd in that might makes right, right? That's why we go to war and all that. And so for some reason, the boys have the muscles and the bodies, and at the end of the day, they can beat you into submission. And uh, as horrible as that is, and I say it to sound horrible so that it remains horrible, uh, women are the victim of that, you know. 
And since it was the men who had the freedom to go and sit in the woods and think about these things, the women, of course, had to take care of the family and cook the meals and wash the dishes because the man said so, and he was bigger than they were, and so it ended up they had to do that. Uh, things aligned that way, and it, it bled into the scriptures at some level. For, for men, women are the obstacle. For, for women, men are the obstacle, you know. Uh, in the end, nobody's an obstacle, <laughs> you know, in the ideal. So this idea of renunciation is, in its healthy sense, <laughs> let me emphasize that, the healthy view of renunciation has nothing to do with leaving things behind. If you're a child and you're playing at the daycare center with all of your toys and your mom walks in to pick you up, what do you do? You immediately drop all your toys and run to your mother. That's, that's healthy renunciation. There's no idea that the toys are bad. There's no idea that the toys are evil. There's no idea that they're anything lesser. But you want your mother more than anything else in the world. And so you leave everything else and go to your mother. All right. Now, if your mother comes and sits with you in the toy room, then you can pick all the toys up. You've got them both. And at that point, all is good. So put that kind of map that onto our condition here. When we are not aware of the beloved, of our mother being in the room with us, and we're on the practice of trying to realize her, to try to see her, to reach her, we are encouraged, lay down your toys. You have to lose your distractions, not because they're good or evil, but because they're distracting you. See your mother. When you see your mother, run to her and leave everything behind, not because everything is evil, but because everything is not your mother. When you get your mother, when you come to that realization of your nature, you know who you are, and you're no longer subjected to the desires and whims of body and mind. You are the one who can say yes and no. At that point, you can sit down and play with all of your toys to your heart's desire because you know the beloved in them. You have the company of your, of, of your inner nature. You're not deluded. You're not looking for something anymore. You're not, you don't feel a lack of self within anymore. You're not under the delusion that your that your toys are going to be your answer because you have you have the divinity. So that's that's the healthy perspective of it. Now we get into all of our dilemmas because of ego, you know? And we get into this idea of renunciation, you know, the 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 there's a period in Catholic history where it really just got out of control, you know, <laughs> renunciation, people beating themselves. There's still a, you see the you know the Philippines that goes on once a year, people are like nailing themselves to crosses and flagellate. There's a Muslim thing too where they're cutting themselves with swords. That that is when people have forgotten that renunciation is not about the leaving behind. You see, immature renunciation keeps its eyes on the thing that you're leaving behind. It's not looking at that which you're running toward. And so the emphasis is about leaving your toys behind and they don't talk about running to your mother. That's, that's egoistic renunciation. And it becomes a thing in and of itself. And then ego begins to measure itself by the severity of your renunciation. I'm better than you because I beat myself with these swords and I have these scars of my devotion to show for it. Your identity has become attached to your renunciation. And renunciation has failed utterly because that's exactly what renunciation is supposed to prevent, is that attachment of self to a thing or to an idea. You know, the self is, is all-inclusive, all-free. 
but there is a period of time because we're really good at attaching to things. We're really good at saying hi to mom, really good at saying hi to our kids. We're really not very good at saying goodbye. You know, saying goodbye hurts and, you know, we, we suffer. And so in religion, we have to practice to the point where our sense of attachment is matched by our sense of detachment so that we can leave and come in equanimity because we see the oneness, that there is no going and coming in its highest form. So, so we don't so much renounce our instincts as much as um, we, we don't allow them to govern us. That's the goal, yes. That's something very important. I heard that from a minister when I was a teenager, and it stayed with me now for 40 years. Uh, he says, you're not allowed to say yes to something until you have the ability to say no to the same thing. If that thing is in charge of you, you do not have the privilege of enjoying it. And that's where you need to practice your willpower. You need to build up your ability to control it. Because you're the charioteer. You know, in, in Vedanta, the, in the Bhagavad Gita, they have this illustration that the, the body is a chariot and the horses are the senses. And you are the charioteer driving the chariot. If you let the senses, the five horses, run wild, you're not going to survive that journey. You know, you, nor is your chariot. <laughs> it's all going to come apart. And you're going to be in it totally destroyed. And so that image is used to say, this is why we reign in the senses. This is why we practice self-control, because we want to get to the point where we have as much privilege to say yes to our enjoyment as we are to say no to them. They are no longer necessary for our inner peace, for our inner sense of self. Anything else? I just have an observation and a question, really. The observation was this past weekend, I went to the Ukrainian festival mm. on New Hampshire Avenue, and the Ukrainian church is right next to the mosque. And it was really interesting because um, they had run out of the, one of the cords to a speaker had broken, and a, a woman who was Muslim went into the mosque and got a cord and brought it back. And I'm watching all of this, and the places are about maybe 200 yards apart. And all of a sudden, these women came out of a meeting in the mosque, and they started helping with the food and the kids, and they, they were doing storytelling. As the, as the Ukrainians were telling stories, the Muslim women were telling stories, and it didn't matter to the kids. They were just hearing these wonderful little mm. stories. And it, I, I, I had somewhere to go, and I canceled that because I wanted to watch. Yes. So I observed. And at the end of this, like two hours later, the Muslim women do this charity of working with battered women and abused women, and the Ukrainian women were signing up to help them. And, the, and then it was like the Muslim women were helping the Ukrainian do this one charity. It was like, wow, I had this vision that wouldn't it be great if there weren't like, Oh, that's the Muslim place over there, and this is the Ukraine. They were separate in their beliefs, mm -hmm. a lot of their beliefs, but they also had a unity. Yes. That was so gorgeous to watch. Yes. So that's the observation. That's beautiful. There's so many things about that. One, I'm so grateful to hear that story because it, it just builds my heart up. It really is exactly what this is about. It is important, though, that we have a Ukrainian center and a Muslim center. We should all have our individuality our individual basis, but all of it needs to be informed by that underlying oneness. You know, when Vivekananda came to this country for the first time in 1893, he said in, this first, in his first address, and I've got 
maybe not. I thought I brought some of his first addresses. But he said, he says, you know, I come not that a Christian become a Hindu or that a Muslim become a Christian. He said, God forbid, we must each be great in our own place. You know, but I come that a Christian be a better Christian, that a Hindu be a better Hindu and a Muslim be a better Muslim. And since we share the most important ideals, there is no religion that does not say love is the most important thing. If we talk and emphasize the things that we say are most important, if we actually implement them as being the most important, then that is what the world looks like. We, even, we can cross a boundary which doesn't exist to be helpful to our fellow selves. <laughs> you know, that underlying love is there. But that preference of mind and preference of, of worship and whatnot, that's meaningful and important. And we should honor that in each other and not feel the necessity to dismantle that in each other. But to look for the good in each other and fan that, you know, to find the highest in each other and fan that, encourage that, lift that up, recognize that, and, and create a world on that instead of looking for what the differences are. You know, you get two people from two different religions and the first thing they want to talk about is what their differences are. The practice of a spiritual seeker is to talk about what your sameness is. What's most important to you? Wow, that's what's most important to us too. How cool is that? The most important thing we have in common. And then the other stuff just goes off and becomes secondary interest, which is all it was ever intended to be. <laughs> you know? So thanks, that's beautiful. I'm glad that that's happening. I'm very excited. This part of the country, I find, I'm new over here. I've only been here for five years. And when I first got, when, when I first moved here in eighth grade, I went to eighth grade in Poolsville for one year. My dad was in the military. At that point, everything was Christian. Everything was white. <laughs> like in my whole school, I think there was four kids of color, you know, and I remember wondering who they dated. <laughs> So I came, that's the world I left when I was in eighth grade. And when I moved back here, and I've been walking around the neighborhoods for my afternoon exercises and taking drives and just seeing the amount of diversity that is here, the mosques, the, the, the Orthodox temples, the Jewish synagogues, the Vedanta centers, the, the Hindu temples, the Kali palace, you know, all, these, all of these things, the Buddhists, yeah, the Tibetan Buddhists right around the corner from us, all of these in, in the same area. And there's no hint of violence. You know, there's no hint of violence. What a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful accomplishment, you know. If only we could get that. An opportunity to taste their food. Yes, that's exactly. <laughs> to enjoy, that's right. To enjoy each other. That's how it should be. That's how it should be. To go and enjoy. To be able to sit in a mosque for a day and, and, and worship Allah with a full and, and honest heart because you see your beloved mirrored there. To go to a Catholic church. And to worship your beloved, you know, because you can see your ideal there. To go with the Buddhists, you know, and go inward and find that oneness of compassion because you see that ideal there. That's, that's the highest. That's why we went to the Immigration March on Friday to protest that, that. We welcome immigrants. We want to deal with them in Montgomery County courts. We don't yes. want, we want to take care of our own. Yeah, we don't want that hatred there bleeding over style. here. <laughs> that's it. Thank you for participating in that. I, I think Montgomery County now rivals uh, Queens in diversity. Really? 1.1 million on 500 square miles. It's about a third of us were not born in the US. Yeah. 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 See, and that's, uh, that's fantastic. And yeah. And, and, and it shows you it works. It works. 
You know, all of this rhetoric that's going on right now, unnecessary, utterly unnecessary. All right. Any pressing question? Otherwise, we're way past time. Keep a wonderful. All right. God bless us all. <laughs>